Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1345, air date November 1st, 2023. Hello and welcome to the Kim Iverson Show. Tonight, our guest is one we've had before, Dr. Shiva Ayadurai. Dr. Shiva is a very, very anti-establishment candidate running for president and is one of the only candidates out there who is not all in on the war in the Middle East. Dr. Shiva is the inventor of email. He holds four degrees from MIT and is a Fulbright scholar. He's very smart. He's a world-renowned engineer, inventor, entrepreneur, activist, and systems scientist. And tonight, we're really going to focus on what Dr. Shiva calls the swarm, who is really controlling the world, who is running things, how have the powerful elite been able to manipulate people and control the working class, Why is it when we have anti-establishment candidates, they give us hope and then just seem to fall in line and become just another one of them? So Dr. Shiva is going to lay this out very clearly for us tonight. Really looking forward to that conversation. Dr. Shiva Ayodurai, it's so great to have you. Thank you so much for joining the show. Great to be here, Kim. Thanks for everything you do. Okay, I want to first ask you about your your campaign, your your presidential run, and what's interesting about this. Um, so you were not born in the United States. Last time you were on, I, I was I was pushing you on this because I, like many Americans, believe you have to be born in the United States in order to run for president, or or at least to I mean anybody could run, I guess, but to actually take uh, the Oval Office. Since then, what's interesting is that Jenk Unger of the I think I'm saying his name right of the uh, Young Turks has also announced he's running for president. I don't know how his campaign's doing or anything, but. People have been pointing out that same problem with him because he was born in Turkey, and he's actually in agreement with you on, no, there. this just hasn't been challenged properly. It just hasn't been done. And so if you challenge it, though, there's a lot of people who actually think that you would you would overcome this and you could actually win. So I thought that was interesting. So tell us how your, your campaign is going. Yeah, so it's going really well, Kim. As you can see, if you look broadly across, you know, and we're not shadow banned on social media, um, more and more people, you can look at it every day, say, hey, I'm going to vote for Dr. Shiva. I'm going to vote for Dr. Shiva. I'm going to vote for Dr. Shiva. Hey, this guy um, is the one who has consistently spoken the truth. Um, you know, uh, every Thursdays we do a town hall. So, for example, this evening we do a town hall. We get, you know, those numbers keep growing. Um, but a lot of what we're doing, Kim, is to get people on the ground. Um, as I shared last time, you know, when people go to our website, Shiva for President, they download bumper stickers, but we actually have a very powerful flyer. You know, it's old school, Kim, what I used to do when I was a student activist, right? A flyer, one page flyer, the left side of the flyer really shares with people this curve. It's called the lifespan curve. And we're the first ones who started really sharing that about the fact that your children's lifespan will be shorter than yours. Mm-hmm. And that it's not because of the vaccine. It's the issue of systemic policies that go back all the way to the 1960s, which really started showing up in the 1980s. And, and it's policies. And in that flyer, it says this is a policies of the swarm and voting for the lesser of two evils or even for, quote unquote, fake independence like Booby Kennedy are not going to do it. You need a systems overhaul. And then we describe in that flyer what's a swarm, right, where they can take their iPhone and click and go watch the swarm video. And on the right side of the flyer, because we have very little real estate, we explain to people who are campaign is how you can get educated to take a systems understanding and come to our town hall. So our goal is to get around 50 million of these flyers on the ground. So we, in our movement, have close to about half a million people globally. So we've been doing a lot of hard work. Now, in every state, we have to get on the ballot, which means you have to have an organizational structure. Typically, only the Republicans and Democrats have that. Fortunately, we have that infrastructure. 
We have leaders in every state. So it's a pretty large operation we're running. You know, I love building organizations. I've done it as an entrepreneur. You have to figure out how to motivate people. You have to build sort of a, a meritocracy model. So it's all these skills that I learned. So it's, 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 a, it's a lot of fun. But most importantly, we're finding these amazing people who themselves are rising to the occasion so one person doesn't have to do it. And so the organizational infrastructure piece is really, really important in what's happening um, all over the country. The other piece is on the issue that, you know, we went into some detail on the issue of that why it's unconstitutional not to allow a naturalized citizen to be become president. Um, you know, I'm the first one who also uh, filed a declaratory relief lawsuit against Merrick Garland. Um, and, you know, and I can, if you want, I can share that, uh, but it's a cover of that, but we, or I'll send it to you guys later to put in, but that lawsuit basically says, hey, look, uh, for three reasons, not only can I run and be president, A, I can run because of the First Amendment, two, because of the 2011 uh, opinion of the Federal Election Commission, which clearly said a naturalized citizen can run, but you just can't get federal matching funds, which I'm not interested in anyway. Um, but more importantly, the 14th and Fifth Amendment reciprocate each other, uh, which, again, have never been asserted. Just like, mm -hmm. you know, first article said that a woman, only men can be president. The 19th Amendment allows women to be president. Similar, similarly, the argument is the 14th Amendment does. And most legal scholars agree with this. It's just no one has asserted it, actually said, hey, I'm running for president and I'm going to file a declaratory relief lawsuit. So that's what we're doing. Okay, great. I want to talk about the swarm. Um, you just have such an interesting way of putting this out there. When when a lot of us talk about, and we hear this all throughout social media, and many people are very concerned about sort of this this the powers that be who are controlling things. There's this, um, you know, there's an agenda, like the World Economic Forum agenda or uh, a globalist agenda. And the thinking is that there's maybe a group of people who are pulling the strings, plotting, like they've got a plan and they're now pushing everybody towards this plan. And you have a different a different uh, uh, theory of, of who's actually, or an understanding, I guess you could give us clarity on what's actually happening that's driving us towards this agenda. Yeah, so, so you, I think you nailed the problem. When people are trying to identify the enemy, Kim, they take sort of a, lazy man's approach. They say, oh, it's the Rothschilds. Oh, it's Bill Bob Gates, Schwab, right? Right. Yeah, or right. Exactly. Gates. Yeah. Or it's this, it's this bloodline. Oh, it's yeah. these people over here. It's the, you know, and they keep going on. And mm -hmm. if you look at the history of that's never, in fact, what it does, it, it, it creates an opportunity to create more divisiveness without clarity, real unity. I'm not talking about the fake unity. A lot of these people say, oh, let's have unity and shove everything under the rug. But really, to have a real understanding. Now, the only way to get there, in my view, Kim, is using the knowledge of system science, which is what it's a it's a, a field of engineering that really came about in the late 1900s um, and to the height of it with the work of Ilya Pergroni in 1957 and won the Nobel Prize in physical chemistry for this. But the fundamental understanding is that every system in the universe is either a dumb system or an intelligent system. A dumb system typically takes an input and puts out an output. You could argue most in power want us to be that. Watch this ad, go buy this thing. Intelligent systems have a very clear goal. In, the, in, the, in, in this concept, the goal of those in power is power, profit, and control. And, and the goal is to maximize that. No different than a pilot who wants to go from point A to point B, a very clear goal. In order to achieve that goal, those in power use system science, actually. 
They watch where they're headed. Are we going in the right direction? Do we have more people getting fat, dumb, and lazy? Do we have more people um, sort of outsourcing their future to people like Ruby Kennedy or Trump or et cetera, fake leaders? And if that's happening, they're quite happy. And there are other signals. And then now, nowadays, with companies like Palantir, with companies like uh, what Peter Thiel's done, they're getting enormous amounts of data. Right now, they have a very good idea which way people are going sentiment-wise. And once they have which way people are going, what do they need to do? And they put inputs into the system. And those inputs are done by the swarm, okay? Now, the swarm is not any one individual, not any one organization, but it's a uh, interconnected, you could call it telepathically interconnected set of people with similar and sometimes uh, slightly dissimilar interests. So the swarm is not unified. That's why they will one day kill a president, right? Uh, or they'll have, because they're organized criminals fundamentally, which each mm. having their own little fiefdoms. And if you watch a swarm of birds, they're not exactly always moving in the right direction, but collectively they sort of work out their you know, their differences and they move in a particular direction. You can see this if you watch a flock of birds, it's called swarm intelligence. And here the swarm on the power area areas, it, you could, it includes, let's say the top 100 uh, university uh, uh, presidents, right? It includes the heads of the central banks. It includes some of the key leaders who run Hollywood producers and particularly the agents who control many of the Hollywood people, right? It includes um, the front people that they fund as politicians, right? Uh, the obvious establishment, people let's say like a Bush or the Clintons and the not so obvious establishment, people like a Tulsi Gabbard or Bernie Sanders or Booby Kennedy or those kind of people. It's very well orchestrated, but all of these people um, are not in any physical location. Today, it's a multi-racial aristocracy. They're the Indian Brahmins, right? They're the uh, elites uh, in universities like Oxford and Cambridge, but it's it's an interconnected group of people. And the best way to, and, and you can think about it, you know, all NAC, all systems ultimately seek their own kind of structure. Any system in the universe, it's fascinating. And, in the, and so when you see a system of birds and you see a system of humans, you come to the same conclusion. There's certain fundamental systems principles. So it's a great video. You know, I did it with a little uh, blue marker and a whiteboard. And we did it in about 15 minutes and everyone should watch it. But that, I would argue that whiteboard took me about 50 years to get there. It was a deep understanding of system science and the ability to articulate it. And I think in spite of all the shadow banning, I think others have downloaded and put it up there. And I encourage everyone to steal it, copy it, you know, it's, yeah. you know, it's copy free, get it out. I'll uh, put that link. People. Definitely. I'll put that link down below. Um, but the, the basic idea being that people are operating, that, that the elites, that those who are running everything, those in the positions of power and positions of wealth are naturally going in the same direction, naturally pushing society in a certain direction for their own self-preservation, would you say? Would you say that their own motivation is themselves? They're not doing it for some necessarily big global world order type thing. It's no. just that that's how it's happened. That's, it's just, yeah. am I getting that's that right? Not, yeah, that's a vehicle. You, it, the, you could look at, a, you know, it's not any one individual ant that's fighting for on the one hand, the ant is doing its deal, but you have to look at the ant hill, right? Yeah. What emerges out, it's called an emergent property, right? The individual is doing their self-interest, but also there comes what's called an emergent property. And so the swarm is an emergent property, these individual characters who all want to maximize power, profit, and control for themselves to the extent that they can have linkages with other people in this collective that helps them do that. 
they will build their alliances, but they may even have sometimes their own. This, it's like the mafia. It's organized crime, yeah. right? Uh, now, ultimately, all the organized criminals don't want the police coming in, right? Or right. don't want the FBI. But together, they right. may knock off one person. They may, you know, support one person. It's that kind of thing. And okay. once people understand this, it's much, much easier for people to then start looking at issues beyond, oh, this is a person, that's a person. Because then they're running around with chickens with their heads cut off, going here, going there. And, and, and the swarm is very, very clever at uh, distracting people away from the central thesis that's about maximizing power, profit, and control. Yeah. That's what it's and, about. And that makes sense. I mean, it like kind of what you're saying with the mafia, like the five families in New York, right? They're at war with yeah. each other, but at the same time, they do work together in order to achieve a certain goal, which is to not let the police get them, right? They don't want to be cracked down on and exposed. So they'll work together on that one thing, but ultimately they're they're also battling it out and offing each other and, and stuff like that. So yeah, and, and, and I, I'm sorry. And I think just in that context, I think, I think when you look at that, it is it, bring, it brings up this other very important thesis on how do you change the world? Are you going to look above to one mobster knocking off another mobster? So if it's it's a Trump today versus a Biden's, you got to understand both of these guys are organized crime families, right? Or when people get all involved in the JF Kennedy assassination, what I tell people is, look, Joe Kennedy was from is organized crime. So among organized criminals, you no one is ever going to know who knocked off Jimmy Hoffa. No one mm -hmm. still doesn't know who knocked off Sam Giancana. And we have to understand that these are organized crime families who come together under certain situations but among them, they still have their own contradictions. And we as a quote unquote, the plebes and the peasants, why are we looking to them to see this guy knocked off this guy? And why are we choosing sides among these organized crime families? So it tells us to break out of the swarm. Yeah, okay. And there's, a, and definitely, so there's not like one power, you know, one mastermind behind this whole thing or a group of masterminds behind the whole thing kind of leading us in these directions. It's really just, I think people are fundamentally selfish. It's just a, it, the average individual naturally, and that's all, that's built into us genetically to look after ourselves and our preservation and our life, you know, first and foremost. That's why we're willing to kill somebody who's maybe trying to kill us, right? I mean, maybe we have like a, a the ethics of I don't kill, but in a certain circumstance, I would. Same thing with my family, right? Then my my next priority would be my family and they're and caring for them, sometimes even them above myself. But it's still I'm caring about my family more than your family, of course, naturally, just like you care about your family more than mine. So when people are operating selfishly, and they're looking out for their own self interest, and what's going to be beneficial for them and their own families, society is set up in a certain way that they need to they need to go and do certain things, achieve certain things, gain certain things like money, power, position, right? And so then they kind of end up going in that direction naturally together and and then saying, oh, yeah, I care about you. I care about you. But really, they don't care about us at all. I mean, they're looking out for themselves and they're siphoning resources because they're looking out and pre they're pre preserving for themselves. And so it's a natural, right. a natural thing to have happen. And then they're all in in line with one another. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I do. I like I said, the link is down below. People definitely should watch it. I think it's a really good explanation of. All of the, you know, there's the big pharmas and there's the political groups that get us into, you know, the military industrial complex. Then there's this, the surveillance state and there's the power, the CEOs of big companies and like you said, the universities. And they all, they're not, they're not like manipulated by some group in a, in a dark room somewhere. It's this swarm mentality that drives them all in that same direction. It's really fascinating. Um, 
Let's talk about, so there are only, there's not many, one of the things that's been really frustrating for many of us is that there, the political class, there's been a lot of division in the political class when it comes to the war in Ukraine, for example. You've got a lot of GOP that say, we don't need to give any more funding, we don't want to support this. And then you've got others that are saying, yes, we do, we want more funding, more war. Um, they might debate on other things like censorship with the government and and social media and many of us thought, we've got fighters, we've got people who are really going in the right direction. And then the topic of Israel comes up. And suddenly, they're on lockstep. I mean, talk about a swarm. They are in lockstep. And there, yes. there is no daylight between, you know, somebody like uh, somebody like Joe Biden. Well, Biden, you know, you've got the real hardliners, like Nikki Haley, right? And she's just like an attack on Israel's an attack on the United States. Even though we don't have a NATO-type agreement with Israel, like we do with all these other countries. Um, there's no daylight between them. You're one of the only, I, I think that it's just you, Cornell West and Cenk Unger, who take the position of, you know, we should really be looking at this differently. Uh, and so there's not many of you that, that have this position. Why do you think that is? I mean, even Bobby Kennedy, a lot of us looked at him for a lot of the positions on his platform that we were like, okay, great, agree, agree, agree. And then suddenly he was like, uh, he says, I'm anti-war, but Israel, well, why Israel? And rather than giving us the answer of because it's their homeland from 3,000 years ago or the Holocaust or some any other answer, his answer was because it's like an aircraft carrier in the Middle East. Like he gives us the war, the military answer, the war answer. Um, so, and that was really disappointing for a lot of people. You've been really consistently anti-establishment, anti-war, and even on this issue. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it goes back, Kim, what, what, when you take a systems approach to life, um, you develop an ability to see things as they truly are. And you it, you cannot have these harsh inconsistencies. You know, you, you brought up Booby. I call him Booby Kennedy because I have such... Uh, disregard for this individual because he is part of the swarm. He is someone who's manufactured by the swarm. And one of the swarm's uh, abilities and, and needs to survive is to have, to be able to mimic things to attract people, to make them feel, others feel, the peasants feel like they're fighting for them. And that's why Kennedy exists. That's why he's positively or negatively put in the mainstream media or Bernie Sanders or people like Tulsi Gabbard, who's a warmonger. She says she's against yeah. the military establishment, but she's a warmonger. And so they have created these characters who say the words. It's almost like a psychological operation, but their goal is to make you look to the swarm for help. And that's why Kennedy was created. I was do the first think, one who had to do this. Can I, can I ask um, you with those, with those three in particular, Do because a lot yeah. of people are very disappointed in all three for those exact reasons. Like Bernie Sanders, that movement, he really seemed like he was gonna be yeah the guy to bring it about, and then he just goes right in line with Democrats, like as if he's just one of them. Same thing, like you mentioned, Tulsi Gabbard, a lot of war rhetoric coming out of her. She was supposed to be the anti-war candidate, Bobby Kennedy, as I mentioned. So why do you, do you think that they were set aside? And like, I, I mean, are they, are they, the, do you think that they got to them in advance and said, this is what we want you to do is bring in this anti-establishment populist crowd? Do you think that they were, you know, like, like, or is it just their own individual thinking that shifted well, I, I think pressure? It, well, I, I think you're asking a very, very quantum level question, which is one of the most important things that pe people need to understand. When you look at the swarm and people go through that video, what the swarm wants you to do 
is to look to them for your liberation, for your, for your advancement, as though they're going to help you. This is a very, very central thesis. They do not want the 0.001%, which is probably what the numbers are. I think those numbers are accurate versus the 8 billion. They do not want the 8 billion self-organizing, which is another systems principle. They do not want the 8 billion raising their consciousness and saying, hey, look, we have to fight for our interests. These people who come from the swarm are never going to do it for us. Now, in order to keep the 8 billion um, in that state of um, not fighting for their own self-interest, Kim, they create these characters. They need them. And in, in my understanding, in modern history, this really started occurring in the 1950s with the McCarthy era. If you go look back between the 1800s and 1900s, there was a time when people started self-organizing. If you look at the women's movement of the early 1900s, if you look at the great upheaval of the late 1800s, when we were transitioning from the ag agrarian world to the industrial world, the factories were horrible places to work in, in the United States or for that matter, Europe. Uh, children were working, child labor, there was no infrastructure. So there was a broad movement. Millions of people started organizing bottoms up in the United States. Um, between 1900 to 1970, there were close to 200 million people on the streets protesting for workers' rights and close to 11,000 strikes. Since 1970 till today, it's been maybe 900 uh, strikes among 2 million people. So look at the vast difference. And so the establishment recognized, the swarm recognized that they do not want people self-organizing. In order to avert that, the swarm did something fascinating. They said, we can never allow this to occur again. So a guy like McCarthy attacked these bottoms up movements, again, in uh, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, nine American workers were shot by the National Guard fighting for the eight hour workday. A lot of people don't know this. So Joseph McCarthy uh, basically construed, basically said all of these people are capital C communists being run out of. And so all of these bottoms up movements were converted uh, or put in the light of that they are communist movements being run out of Russia, right? They must be, and the concept of workers unite could never come up organically. Wow. So after that period, it's very important, it's the 1950s. So the right wing cut, cut the legs off the workers' movement by calling them quote unquote communists. The left wing, which was at that point really bottoms up trade unions, truly organic, was taken over by the so-called left. So by 1970, that's when remember Reagan bust the Patco workers. The unions were really taken over by the mob and people like the Bernie Sanders and the Boogie Kennedys and the Tulsi Gabbers. So this was effectively done because they knew they did not ever want a bottoms up organized movement. And this mm -hmm. is a central understanding everyone needs to get. They're fine with Booby Kennedy. You thinking, oh, Booby's going to help us or Tulsi's going to help us or Bernie. And to me, I saw this manifested as a young activist in 1984 at MIT. If you remember, uh, Walter Mondale was running against a guy called Reagan, Democrat and Republican. Yeah. In the midst of that, a fellow by the name of Jesse Jackson shows up. You will remember this. He had this thing called the rainbow movement, a lot of rhetoric and young idealists like myself. Wow, Jesse's anti-establishment. But what we saw that he did was like a fly trap. He attracted all these young activists, suckered them in. And at the last minute, he gives all of his votes to Walter Mondale, speaking the lesser of two evils. Yeah. He was from the Reform Party. So that was his role. And some people say he was given a airplane for that deal, a private plane.
Well, so and that's the question. Is, the, the question is like, did he was he did he do it because they sat him down and said, listen, this is what we want you to do? Did he do it because he realized when he got to the kind of the end, the finish line, he realized, oh, crap, I don't have a future. I don't have it. You know, I'm going to be crushed by the swarm if I don't join the swarm. You know, is it a self-preservation or is it corruption? I think it's probably a mixture of all those things. Hmm. You know, I, I, don't, I haven't had time to do the archaeology, um, but it was probably a, it was a probably a combination of all those things. Yeah. Um, I don't think he was about building a bottoms up movement. It was about him. It wasn't okay. about recognizing how movements are built. And this is why I spend a lot of time in our movement, Truth, Freedom, Health, educating people this history I just gave. Without that history, Kim, people don't understand the importance of building these bottoms up movements, decentralized, educating people so it's not relying on one individual. It has to be decentralized. So, so that's the critical thing. So after that point, so when Jesse, when um, uh, Bernie Sanders ran, I had a good friend of mine, very smart woman, MD, PhD out of Harvard, a neuroscientist. She was heading up the entire Bernie campaign in New England. She comes to my home. He says, Shiva, you're anti-establishment. You've got to support Bernie. I said, look, Laurie, Bernie's going to do exactly what Jesse Jackson did in 1984. Mark my words, at the last minute, at the Democratic convention, Bernie Sanders is going to hug Hillary Clinton. And he's going to say, you have to vote for her. She goes, you're so full of shit. You're always critical of everyone. You know, I hate <laughs> you. And she leaves. She leaves. I didn't see her for two years. Very good friend. Two years later, she calls me crying. And she said, Shiva, you were so right. I gave my life to this guy and he did exactly what you said. I said, the reason is, Lori, you're smart. You don't understand there's an engineering dynamics here. These people would not be getting mainstream media attention. They would not be on all these stations if they were not endorsed by them. And once you understand that, it becomes very easy why you must call out Booby Kennedy or Trump, et cetera. The swarm is very clever. It will create the theater. And that's what we're seeing right now with Israel. So when you look at Israel, so I using that systems approach, Kim, it gives you a, a prescience to see things, not because you're super smart. It's because there are certain principles that are there. So right now, if you look at what's going on with Israel, it's the same phenomenon. And, and to understand that, we have to understand the interlinkages of history. So if you go back to 2008, Barack Obama was brought in as a candidate of the swarm, right? Overnight, the Pritzkers, I think one of the big families in Chicago funded him, and this one-term senator is thrust upon people because people were pretty upset at that point with the Bushes, so they needed hope. So Obama is created and he's thrust upon people. In fact, 57% of people voted for Trump, voted for Obama. People mm -hmm. need to understand that. So he was able to, quote unquote, appeal to the broad working class who, instead of breaking and building a bottoms up movement, they needed to put another false idol. And that's really the goal. They do not want people to build a bottoms up movement. And once we understand that, you'll see why they create these characters. So what does Obama do? At the height of his you know, presidency in 2008, the Zionists who control the financial systems, the Zionists who are, uh, and their cohorts, a swarm, were involved in printing money, um, realized that they had been making all these derivative products, these loans. Which were, which were going to fail and, and, and fall. And, th and they had a major failure in 2008 when all the banks failed because they were giving out crazy types of products that was created by the collusion of the Federal Reserve, the banks and the treasuries. I mean, all of them were involved. They all rotate between them. When that crash took place, what did Obama do? The man of the people. He printed $8 trillion and bailed them all out. This is critical to understand. $8.1 trillion what Obama printed. 
And that money dispersed and that and they called it quantitative easing. Swarm is very clever, uh, coming up with very clever words. That money went really to boost up the stock market and went to the swarm, the swarm. They saved the swarm. And between 2008, 2016, that money was being dispersed, right? By 2016, in my view, um, they knew another economic crash was coming because the United States economy was being built on fumes, not really bottoms up entrepreneurs and real innovation. Just look at it. So they needed, and people had sort of had it with Obama. They needed a new, a, a new fake idol. And that was the purpose of Trump. Trump was created. He was manufactured. Uh, I mean, if you look at his balance sheet, I have somebody I know who worked, uh, who analyzed his balance sheet. Okay. You know, he had $1 billion in assets and $2 billion in debt. And this guy told him, look, Donald, you're a billionaire. You're a negative billionaire, right? He was a reality show billionaire. So they found this guy, gave him all the talking points, drain the swamp, lock her up. You know, I'm sure they did amazing focus group analysis on this, what particularly the white working class would want to hear. He was brought in. And what did he do? There was an economic crash that was predicted to come. So in order not to have that economic crash come out and, and in a true market capitalism model that should have come out and we should have gotten rid of all the thing, the products that didn't work, right? Instead, they created the pandemic. The pandemic was a wonderful uh, crisis that they created to hide the underpinnings of the fact that the entire financial system was running on fumes. And what did Trump do? In one term, he printed $8 trillion. Where did that money go? It went to 600 billionaires who increased their wealth by $2.3 trillion. Elon Musk being among one of them, who's like this with government, he's a front man for government. And the stock market, which was going like this, did a nice V turn, if you remember. Mm -hmm. So, but still the economy is running on fumes. And in my thesis, if you follow this all the way through, through this October, there should be a massive crash. Anyone who looks at this knows that the stock market is at ridiculous high levels that it never should be. You can look at certain stocks. The whole thing, the swarm is running this on fumes on the backs of working people in this country. So in my theory, they needed another crisis. And it was a meeting of two crises in Israel itself. If you go back prior to October 7th and, and the 12 months before that, there's been a massive civil war brewing, a massive civil war brewing in Israel against two, against Netanyahu. Israeli Jews and many different coalitions no, this guy's corrupt. He's, he was convicted, right? He has multiple indictments. And so there's been this bottoms up movement brewing in Israel. Uh, two weeks before October 7th, there were nearly 100,000 people who protested against him. Yeah. Because he was trying to manipulate the judiciary. And none of this is mainstream media. Right. From April, um, from April uh, to October, he had sent twice to invade the, uh, you know, the, uh, the the main mosque there, right? So he wanted to incite something. It's your typical corrupt leader who's got internal problems and they want to point it to someone else and start a war. And that's what Netanyahu did. And by the way, if you look at the shekel price, people should just map it from January 2022 to today. It's been precipitously coming down, which means the Israeli elites have been selling off the shekel and more than likely moving to treasuries. So you have many Israeli companies have been moving out. So Israel is in disaster economically. So uh, Netanyahu's entire existence was threatened. So how wonderful, I'm not saying this happened in this way, a phone call is made to Hamas, which by the way, Israel created, okay? 
uh, Yossi Cohen, the Mossad chief two years before that, had been with Qatar saying, please fund Hamas more. Mm -hmm. so, so overnight you see these gliders coming over, evading supposedly the most, you know, uh, you know, amazing uh, surveillance that Israel has, AI watching every people, every microsecond, right. comes in and says, you have this crisis. Now it helps the US swarm and the Israeli swarm. Both are very connected, a la Zionism, because the United States economy is running on fumes. Now you have the third opportunity to do quantitative easing and print more money. And that's what this is about. You have to follow the money. And from a systems perspective, all fits beautifully because the swarm protects itself. And Zionism is very key to this because the, the Zionist uh, concept is, has been very effectively used to manipulate Jews. And then we should talk more about that, the working class mm -hmm. Jews versus the bourgeois Jews going all the way back to World War II. People need to understand Zionism is racism. It is a political ideology. Zionists collaborated with the Nazis in the Warsaw Ghetto Revolt, for example, to disarm the Jews who actually wanted to fight. Zionism and Nazism have always gone together like this. And in the United States, the Zionists have been very, very effective at manipulating the quote-unquote Christian evangelical Zionists. Um, so the broad mass among America, there's this big support for quote-unquote Israel. And that really comes from the evangelicals. The evangelical Christians, who many of them are very connected to Mossad and Israel, if you do a little bit of research, and to, in fact, write to Bibi Netanyahu. So the manipulation that's gone on is quite extraordinary. And Mike Johnson, who's a recent speaker, the second in line to be president, completely reflects that. Here's a hardcore, quote unquote, Christian. I put that in yeah. double quotes because I don't think Christ supports Zionism. Um, and he is, first thing he do, does is when he gets uh, elected, he does a proclamation, we must support Israel. So it says yeah. it pretty much right there. So this is, we need to look at this in the, in the context of finance and money and money supply. The money supplies, Milton Friedman says, when it contracts, you know, more than, uh, you know, two quarters, there's typically going to be a bear market. And they're trying to stave off a bear market. That's what this is all about. And war is a wonderful way. You have a little dip and then you print money and you come out of it. So yeah. that's what this whole setup is about. And, 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 uh, and all of this is being done at the expense of Jewish people and the Palestinian people. And when I say the Jewish people, the non-Zionists, because frankly, right. the Zionists don't give a damn about Jews, nor don't, do they give a damn about Palestinians. And all of this feeds British and US imperialism. It was Britain that you know, allowed Zionism to go and occupy this land because they wanted that strategic outpost. They wanted to create a strata of people would be their frontman to basically seize that location yeah. and create a perpetual war. And so when Booby Kennedy says he wants to support that uh, airline. Aircraft um, carrier whatever, in the Middle East. Aircraft carrier, <laughs> he, he's, yeah. he's telling you boldly, at least finally people should see who he is. On the medical freedom movement, he, support, I was, he, he supported Hillary Clinton. He, he wanted people coming to his home to be vaccinated. So, but when you put it all together, what I love about this issue about Zionism, Ken, it, the, it exposes who these people are. Tulsi Gabbard has to reveal that she is a part of the swarm. Bernie Sanders has to reveal he's part of the swarm. It is that defining issue. And then you're yeah. finding these other people who you may have disagreed on on other things. When it comes to Zionism, we can actually unite on that. So that's what I see the opportunity here. Well, it certainly is um, another one of those 
topics that is kind of uh, reorganizing alliances. There's no doubt about that. People that I agreed with very much so during the pandemic or about the endless wars, suddenly when it comes to this one issue, you know, it's just all in for Israel, all in for sending, even if it means sending American troops to battle it out over there, this new war on terror 2.0. Tulsi Gabbard's all in on this. You know, she's very much like radical Islam is the number one thing we must battle. And it's like, really? Because how successful have we been at that (laughs) over the last 20? When have we ever had a single success on that? All we've done is make it more radical, right? Like create ISIS or create because people are going to be angry when you kill their kids. That's what's going to happen. And you're, and they're going to want to liberate their people and seek revenge. And a lot of times very brutally. I think that is something that when you, if you were to kill my kid, I mean, you know, and I get it. And I get that's why Israel now is saying, well, they came after us and our 1300 people. And so now we're just going to, um, but I, I agree with you that, because we, I'm seeing this movement in Israel as well, this uprising against Netanyahu, that a lot of them are saying there's been enough blood, there's been enough war. Our people were killed. Their people were killed. We're done with this. Like, we don't need any more. But Netanyahu, who's trying to save his own skin, and he's very intertwined in the in the U.S. political system, and he's very close with Jared Kushner and Trump and all of the, all these various different um, people— And he's certainly absolutely trying to save his skin. So a lot of people, I think, even in Israel, I think you're right that there's this brewing civil war potentially. Um, I even watched a video the other day of Netanyahu when he showed up at a military base in Israel. Some of the Israeli soldiers were yelling at him, like saying, you did this to us. This is your fault. Like they were angry. So you've got military guys like pointing the finger at Netanyahu saying, you're, this is you. You did this to us. Like, yeah, I think that they're they're on well, edge. Well, I think the Zionism issue, it gives us an opportunity to finally have a real discussion about this at a very deep level. Um, and that's what I've been attempting to do. And it's, you know, we've been educating people. What is Zionism? Zionism right. is racism in the service of imperialism. Well, let's, expl- let's unpack that so that people understand, because yeah. a lot of people don't understand they they equate because the the narrative right now is that if you say Israel or if you say Zionism, you're really meaning Jews, which is not the same thing at all. Uh, Zionism no, is it's, a it's movement. A, it's, 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 yeah. So uh, and so in this educational process, Kim, what, when you go back and look at this, right? Um, if you look at maps going all the way to 1600, it clearly says Palestine. Okay. Right. The just as a side note, and this is not the central note. Imagine you're living in Vermont and you've lived there for 300 years. The Vikings, who actually did come there, say, hey, we have this place. We were there 4,000 years ago. That's our land. It makes ludicrous, okay? Because right. you dug up some 4,000-year-old reference. So that's where that's coming from. But uh, So that's one just points to people how, how stupid this is, how ludicrous it is, because you have to look at the current context that was taking place. The current context of the time, if we go to the mid-1800s, you know, by the way, I've spent time in Israel about six weeks, and I have, I have a lot of good Jewish friends, right? Where many of them are anti-Zionists, by the way. Yeah. So when I, uh, you know, when I was in the 80s, when I was 17, 18 years old, I really started exploring this. And so for me, it was very personal because I grew up in India where there was a caste system. Um, and the caste, Hinduism was never originally based on the caste system. Then you created this thing called the Brahmin caste system, which is very much like Zionism. And that's where Tulsi Gabbard is getting this stuff from, because she's, quote unquote, a Hindu. And so the 
Brahmanical caste system took elements of Hinduism and then they packaged it up to justify the fact that one group of people were chosen over the others. Very, very, very fundamentally sim uh, similar, the Brahmin caste system to Zionism. So when I came to the United States, you know, I grew up in Patterson, which is a very poor African-American public school system than Clifton. Persephone had, very interestingly, Jews, but they were working class Jews. You know, my uh, sixth grade teacher had been in the, in the Navy. He ran a small deli, right? But when I moved to Livingston, New Jersey, by the, by the way, where Jared Kushner and Ivanka, maybe still used to live, Chris Christie was a catcher of our baseball team I used to pitch. I noticed a big difference. Me and my sister were the only two uh, dark-skinned Indians among this massive group of around 4,000 Jewish kids. And I remember around ninth um, or 10th grade, the parents would send their kids to Israel. And these very nice friends of mine would come back rabid Zionists, wanting to kill every Arab. It was quite amazing to watch this transformation. But there was always in the ether the concept of the chosen people. Now, Livingston was a much wealthier school system than Persephone or Clifton. So the reason I want to unpack this is that there are there is a class issue here. There is very wealthy Jews and there are the working class Jews. So now if we go back to the 1800s, um, uh, there were Jewish pogroms taking place by the mm -hmm. quote unquote Cossacks. So that's a reality. Um, what one needs to understand is that at that time, there were very, very bourgeois Jews who would collaborate with the lords and the kings to be their bankers and usurers, etc. But they were also the working class Jews. And these bourgeois Jews needed to keep their working class Jews in alignment with that. So even back then, they would do division among the Jews and the Christians, right? Uh, and say, hey, you're being uh, treated in anti-Semitic ways. But what one needs to understand is that even back then, the bourgeois Jews always collaborated, even with the Cossacks, against their own people. And, and you, you, people should go do some history on this. Yeah. But anyway, Theodore Herzl, H-E-R-Z-L, he comes out in the middle of all of this in the 1800s. Um, and there were two trends at that time among Jewish people. One trend was, hey, we're, peop we're everyday people. We have the right to fight back for our uh, progressive nationalist rights. The ethnic nationalism was what Herzl represented. And he really wanted to actually divide Jews. He wasn't into Jews fighting against their oppression, very much like Marcus Garvey did in the United States. In the black movement, Marcus Garvey said, oh, we're being mistreated here. Let's go back to Africa. It was an ethnic nationalism. Let's okay. go back to our old homeland, forgetting that the African kings themselves were slave owners. And, right? So Herzl came from that trend of the bourgeois Jews. He created, manufactured a philosophy called Zionism, which was based on racism. And his collaborators were other racists who funded him, Cecil Rhodes, C-E-C-I-L-R-H-O-D-E-S. Um, Rhodes, R-H-O-D-S, Rhodes was the founder of Rhodesia, you know, very closely linked with apartheid South Africa, and for example, you know, exploiting the hell out of black people all over uh, South Africa. He was the one who founded the Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford. He was very much into starting World War I, demonizing the Germans, horrible human being. But that's where uh, Herzl got his funding from, from one of the most racist people on the planet. At the sixth Zionist conference, the goal was we were going to make Uganda be our homeland. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then the British in the Balfour Declaration said, no, we're going to move you over here. 
knowing that Arabs were there, 97% Arabs, right, in Palestine, the Britain had been looking for many, many years to seize that very, very strategic location. And this was a, remember, British model was always divide and rule. You go into a place, geographically divide people, cause a lot of ruckus, and then you can start striking deals. They did it all over Africa, India, etc. So they collaborated with Herzl, brought European Jews. You just need to understand these people weren't dark-skinned Arabs. They right. were white Jews from Europe who'd been there for 300 years. And these people essentially come in, occupy Palestine. It was an invasion. There were Arabs who were Jews. There were Arabs who were Christians, Arabs who were Muslims there. And a number of Arabs who were Jews start converting to Islam based on the treatment they suffered from these European Jews coming in, quote unquote yeah. Zionists. And so that's the origin of the Zionist movement. But it was done, when I say Zionism is racism in the service of imperialism, this is British and US imperialism who want their aircraft carrier in the Middle East, who yeah. want that strategic location. So they did this divide and rule policy and Herzl was a perfect character to support them in this process. And time, um, one needs to understand that this is a very, very critical thing to understand. Do you see times? The Zionists, who are the bourgeois Jews, collaborated with Hitler against working class Jews, many of them who were trade union leaders, organizing these bottoms up movements to um, overthrow Hitler. They collapsed in, in the famous ghetto revolt. Jews, Zionists, were the police force in those ghettos. Hitler. And it was those people, who in fact, led people to the gas chambers. It was those people who collaborated with, with Nazis. And, and there were Jews who were fighting Hitler with Molotov cocktail sticks and stones. And they, they you know, they exposed these people, they disarmed them. So everyone needs to understand there's Zionism, there's Judaism, right? And they're two different phenomena, no different than Indian Brahmin casteism and Hinduism. Yeah. So that's where Tulsi Gabbard's coming from. When this, look, when I grew up in India as a child in Bombay, I mean, I remember waking up in the morning, you would hear, people doing their morning prayers in Islam. We would, in December, you would have Christians in the distance who hung their star. People lived in relative peace. But in those kinds of old cultures, Kim, it's very easy for a politician, for a Hindu politician to go among Hindus and say, oh, you know, the Muslims said this about you, riled them up to get votes. Similar for the Muslim politician to go. So it's called communalism. Yeah. Because these are old, ancient cultures. So you can just say something negative and you can get people riled up. And that's what has happened. So Netanyahu doesn't give a damn about the Jewish people. He's a Zionist. Yeah. He cares about his advancement. He cares about his strata of people. He cares about Jared Kushner. He cares about you know what's going on in US politics, who you can manipulate. So every, I would say nearly 300, 400 people in Congress have to be supported by the Zionist PACs, APAC, in order to yeah. get a position there. So the relationship between the financial systems, which are run by Zionists, and the hegemony that takes place in, in creating war is totally interconnected because they must print money at will to support the military industrial complex. So they need war and crises as a way to bury the fact that the financial system of the elites is built on vapor. And that's what this is about. I think it's important for people to understand that not all Zionists are Jews. There is there's a difference. When we already mentioned yes. that with Christian Zionism, but anybody could be a Zionist. Actually, you could be racist against Jews and be a Zionist, right? In fact, 
it would be in alignment with your thinking. You're like, hey, I, there's a place for you to go. And it's not around, you know, so if you erase it, if you truly were an anti, anti-Semitic and you're like, then that's, and, and that's why there was this sort of collaboration in the, in the 30s between those Zionists and the Nazi regime in Germany, because they thought, hey, we've got a, we've got a common goal and that is to yes. move Jews, right? So you want us gone, and I want us gone too. I want us over here in our own place, and you want us gone somewhere else out of your place. So well, let's collaborate in this like common thing. Um, and so, and it, it, one point, Kim, it's yeah. very, it's very simple. It's very similar. So the ethnic cultural nationalism is very different than progressive nationalism. The Garveyites in the United States did the same thing with the KKK. Many of the people said, we want our own homeland back to Africa. They collaborated with the KKK. So blacks collaborated with the KKK. They said, we're in alignment here. You don't want us here. We don't want to be here. So that's the ethnic nationalism leads to this racism. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Well, and it's it's dangerous. It it is such a dangerous thing um, for a a Jewish American or Jewish German or Jewish French national, whatever they might be, right? It's so dangerous for there to be this country in the Middle East that says, no, we're your home, not where you are, we are. We're your home, we're your primary home, we're your first home. Because then it breeds the anti-Semitism in their own countries where people then look at them and say, well, who are you loyal to? Are you an American? Are you French? Are you German? Are you British? Or are you Israeli, right? And a lot of the, a lot of Jews say, I don't even wanna have anything to do with that country. I'm, I'm an American and now you're telling me I'm actually an Israeli? Like that is going to breed hate. It's going to breed uh, the anti-Semitism, and it, it, so it's dangerous for the idea for that. I mean, if I were told, "Hey, Kim, guess what? We've made a new nation for um, for mixed for Hapas. Like we're gonna we're gonna create a pl- Hawaii, <laughs> Hawaii, the land of Hapas." They're gonna say, "Hey, Kim, you have to live in Hawaii. Your people are all in Hawaii." Uh, everybody who's like you is moving to Hawaii. It's the land of Hapas. So that's where you, you know, that's your home now. Move there. <laughs> uh, and if they were to say, hey, yes, come live with us. But then there's this, if I were to be where I'm from, Idaho, maybe they'd look at me, which nobody ever did this. But if this was an ideology, maybe they'd look at me and say, why don't you live in Hawaii? I'm like, why are you here? Why aren't you somewhere else? And that would be. Right, right. So, Kim, yeah. So, Kim, what you're saying is a foundational theory of divide and rule. It's very deeply psychological. So if you think about what British colonialism did, not only in India, but Africa, you know, the African kings had their boundaries, lived in, you know, they they knew what their boundaries were. When British colonialism went there, it randomly drew lines. It randomly started creating these boundaries. Okay, you're Zulu, you're this, you're that, etc. And that created massive amounts of war all over Africa. And that was very, very valuable because then you could go steal mineral rights, you could go steal diamonds, et cetera. So this same concept here, the use of ethnic nationalism is very powerful because the British got what they wanted. Uh, US imperialism got what it wanted, a base in the Middle East in one of the most strategic areas. So they're fine with these one group, they want ethnic nationalism. It's a very powerful force. Right. So in India, the same thing. That's why a lot of the Hindu nationalists are so in alignment with Zionism. Because Hindu nationalism or Islamic nationalism, whatever ethnic nationalism you call, so the elites love ethnic nationalism. They don't want progressive nationalism, wars of liberation. They were these people, you know, we've been oppressed, but it's still our land. We're not going to leave somewhere else and create some other plot of land. 
They love ethnic nationalism. Um, Rosa Luxemburg, you know, in many, many very interesting discussions uh, years ago, she called it cultural nationalism. It's a powerful weapon. And the British colonialists really know the power of this and British imperialism does. I'm sure there's some Oxford professor who works for one of these Atlantic councils who's done the theoretical work on the power of ethnic nationalism. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're facing right now. We're facing the concept of Zionism is an ethnic nationalism. It has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And so there are more Christian Zionists, I would argue, than Jewish Zionists. And that is what has had, it's a psychological operation that's being done on America. So to your point earlier, all these MAGA people who are so into free speech, so much against the mainstream media, they're all in alignment with the mainstream media. Yeah, yeah. let's go get those Hamas people. We got to reestablish Israel's because they want to cause the, you know, the Armageddon to come. They have a deeply ingrained in their mind. I did an interview a couple of days ago with a wonderful woman in, in Texas. She said, Shiva, I was brought up as a Christian Zionist. And it took me a while to realize that my own preacher was just making money off all of us. And he was very close friends with Bibi Netanyahu. So think about that. This pastor in a church in Texas is friends with Bibi Netanyahu. How do you do that? So Christians, quote unquote, Christian Zionism, in my, as I analyze this, and I could be wrong, I don't think I am, has been the propaganda vehicle to get the broad masses of the American white working class supporting this ethnic nationalist ideology, which is Zionism, which is racist, and it actually is against their own interest. So that's why I say Zionism is racism in the service of the swarm. Zionism is actually anti-Semitic. So anyone listening to this, if you wanna arm yourself with the right discourse, if you have friends of yours who are Zionists, you'd have to say, look, I'm actually against uh, anti-Semitism and Zionism is actually is anti-Semitism. And that's what the opportunity we have came to break people from that. So I'm actually very, very excited after 40 years of having been an activist on this many, many years ago when Ariel Sharon, you know, butchered all those people in Gaza. 1980, I, I led one of the biggest protests against Mir Kahana. Brandeis is a predominantly a, a Jewish university, right? So we used to have all these characters come in. So I've been following this for a while. But I think we have a huge opportunity with this to educate people. Zionism is racism. It's anti-Semitic for serving British and U.S. imperialism. Once people Mm -hmm. get that, um, people are going to understand how abused they have. Particularly the Christian Zionists need to get this. So that's why I think Mike Johnson was put in to reinstantiate that deep into the broad mass of the American working class. Yeah, they voted for him. First time around, and he's like this uh, known, very uh, staunch evangelical Christian who, as you mentioned, his first act was to reaffirm the U.S. and Israel's relationship. And um, yeah, I want to actually read some of these quotes just so that that this was actually on your Twitter account. I want to read your tweet um, that really showcases the, the, the racism in Zionism, this idea that this is our land and it's based, you know, I think any ethnic nationalism and any, any racism in general, actually, when you look at segregation, apartheid, um, when you look at any of these types of, of separations, it's because 
we can't mix with them is the ideology, right? We can't mix with them because if we mix with them, it's going to be an existential threat to our existence. That is usually the argument that is made, like blacks and whites can't live together because if they do, they'll kill each other. So that was the ethos under segregation. Same thing with apartheid in South Africa. We can't mix them. If they mix, it's going to be, you know, hell's going to break loose. So, but these are some of the, of the words, and a lot of people are saying it's the it's Hamas, it's them. They're the ones who will not live with the Jews in Israel. They will massacre us. It'll be suicide. It'll be another Holocaust. If we end the blockades, if we end the occupation, if we allow everybody to live on the land together equally, then it will be the end of us and not just the end of the Jewish state, the giant, the Zionist state that says the, the Jewish people are the premier um, group in this country. We don't, you know, America's for Americans, be you black, white, brown, Asian, be you uh, Muslim, Christian. Is it predominantly white, predominantly Christian? Yes, but we don't have anything in our constitution that says anymore that this is a country that favors one group over another. In Israel, it is in their basic law that one group is favored yeah. over the other groups. That's in their laws, and they recently passed this. This isn't even an old law. This is a law that they affirmed again in 2018, and they continue to affirm laws like this. But these are some of the, the of the phrases that people have said. Uh, Daniel Hagari, Israeli Army Spock, says, We are dropping hundreds of tons of bombs on Gaza. The focus is on destruction, not accuracy. So they're not trying to pinpoint Hamas and go after the bad guys. They're just trying to destroy the place. Here's another one. Ariel Kalner, she's an Israeli politician of Likud, which is Benjamin Netanyahu's political party. Now there's only one goal, Nakba, which Nakba to the Arab population means catastrophe. That's what that word means. And it's mm -hmm. it back in 1948, they had a Nakba where 700,000 of them were pushed out of what is now Israel proper. And they were massacred and pushed out and put into refugee camps. And so this woman says, now there's only one goal, Nakba, a Nakba in Gaza that will dwarf the Nakba of 1948. Mind you, these are not old quotes. These are quotes from this current conflict. This one, Ezra Yakin, Israeli army veteran, says, wipe out their families, their mothers and their children. These animals must not be allowed to live any longer. Tali Gottlieb, who's an Israeli politician, also of the Likud party, Jericho missile, that's like a nuke, right? Jericho missile, doomsday weapon, that's my opinion. Powerful rockets to be fired without borders. Gaza to be smashed and razed to the ground without mercy. Uh, president Herzog, the president of the country, says, it's an entire nation who is responsible. This rhetoric about civilians not being involved is absolutely untrue, and we will fight until we break their backs. And Maya Golan, who um, is... She says she is racist. She literally comes out and says, yes, I am racist. I'm racist because that's self-preservation. She's literally said this. She's a young Israeli woman who is in a position of power, very controversial when she when she was made the Israeli Minister of Women's Affairs because she is an she says I'm a racist, point blank. She says, I want to tell the world what they have long known about me in Israel. I don't care about Gaza. I literally don't care about Gaza. They can go swimming in the sea. So this type, this is the rhetoric that is coming out of the Israeli political group. This is not just fringe people online. Uh, these are people in positions of power, and they're saying very genocidal rhetoric. This is, if this was reversed, and these were uh, politicians coming from anywhere else in the world, 
and saying this type of stuff about Jews. And But then they say, they say, well, Hamas says this about us. So it's okay for us to say this about Hamas because they say this about us. I mean, this is, how do, how do they get out of this? What do you think the solution is? This will be my well, last question well, well, for you. What would you do as yeah, president? So Kim, when, I, when, I, when I found those quotes and I put them up, right? Um, the reason I wanted to do that was to, again, education. I believe ultimately, I, I believe in working people do not want to live like this. Right. Um, if you look at Malcolm X, Malcolm X would, spoke a lot of ethnic nationalist rhetoric during his life, right? Um, and then when he went to Mecca and he actually saw, wait a minute, these are all different people of all different backgrounds. And I was, I've actually been manipulated by Elijah Muhammad, who was an ethnic nationalist, sort of, he, he created a version of Zionism for blacks, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, after he, Malcolm came back from Mecca, he gave a very famous speech. He said, I believe there will ultimately be a clash between the oppressed and those who do the oppressing, but it will not be based on the color of the skin. Two weeks after that, he was executed. So they do not, though the swarm does, it gets back to the central thesis head, does not want working people coming together to define what is in their class interests. That's what this right. is about. As long as we are fighting with ethnic nationalism, it's fine. So the United States is in a very, very important, has a huge opportunity right now. And I think it's the opportunity for us to educate people on what is Zionism. So if I were president, I know the presidency is corrupt. I know the legislature is corrupt. I know the judiciary is corrupt. What would I do? I would do a video with you, just like we're doing right now, Ken, but we reach 8 billion people. The goal is one individual cannot change the world. We have to increase, raise people's consciousness mm -hmm. to understand that ethnic nationalism, this entire thing is not in your interest. The swarm is very clear, power, profit, control. How is it to your interest to be supporting Zionism in Israel. What has it actually done for you? Well, it prints more money. Zionists share their capital among themselves. How is it to your interest? And right. this is this re-education or this education really needs to be done. And that's why I believe in spite of all the horror going on, we have this opportunity to do that. Um, and the and that education needs to be done from a systems understanding. We have to understand that there's a set of people who have a collective interest in advancing power profit control. That's why I'm, I'm grateful you went through the swarm video and we started this discussion on that's a good place to end it too. So working people of the world, the 8 billion of us need to ask ourselves, what interest do I have in following ethnic nationalism? What interest does a Hindu have in India supporting Zionism? What interest do you have? What interest does a poor working class Christian have in supporting Christian Zionism? How has that served you? What it has served you is for the last, since 2008, we've had at least two to three quantitative easings where we printed $33 trillion right now. And who did that money go to? It went to people like Elon Musk, who still controls Twitter, who still serves government, as I expose in our lawsuit. We don't have the First Amendment anymore. So we are constraining working people's freedoms. We are devaluing their labor. And ultimately, it's to cage people in the triangle of central bank currencies, carbon tax, and censorship. That's where this yeah. is all headed. And and us supporting Zionism, which is racism, which is against working people's interests is what people need to educate. So it's really a psychological operation that was done since 1948, Kim. And I think what we need to do is to raise people's consciousness. Yeah. And I, I agree that I think that the vast majority, I mean, you and I have both been over to the to Israel. I've been, have you been into the West Bank? Have you seen the occupation? And 
And uh, no, oh, I didn't wow. have a chance oh, to go man. there. It is. It's. It's. Yeah. A, it'll. It'll leave you speechless. I mean, just you can't. It's. It's unreal that this is happening in real time in today's society, in a place that claims to be a Western democracy. It's unreal. But uh, when you when, when I was there and I spoke to all these wonderful Palestinian people, there is no doubt. I agree with you one hundred percent. There is no doubt that the average working. Palestinian who's not in leadership. Hamas, you know, they talk about this all the time and, and point it out in social media and on the mainstream media that, well, the Hamas guys, they're they're wealthy. They're often cutter doing what, you know, they're not even in Gaza. So then it's like, well, then why are you bombing the place, right? I mean, if, if, the, if the elites are billionaires running around, so the swarm of Hamas, their political elites, and the Israeli elites that are sitting there saying this genocidal rhetoric, and the Hamas elites that are saying genocidal rhetoric, right? The vast majority of the people of Israel and the people of Palestine just want a better life. They just want to work and have a good life for their children, for themselves, have homes, have opportunities. That's all they want. And they and they could absolutely do it together. I have no doubt in me after meeting the Palestinian people, after being around in Israel and seeing the average Israelis, they they could absolutely live together and have a prosperous, wonderful life, just like we've been able to do here in the United States. You and I, as people who are not white, we do believe that we can make it, we can work in this country, that we have opportunities. We don't have to be separated and segregated from one another. We don't need to live like that. And I, I, I believe that the swarm, like you're saying, the swarm of on all sides is just operating together for their own self-interest. You think Hamas wants to end this if these guys are making billions of dollars off of this conflict? You think these Israeli Likud party people want to stop this when they're it's self-preservation, they're making money and they're in the elite and they're the swarm? Nobody wants to end it, but the people do. And I, you're right, we have to rise up, we have to get the message out, and we have to say the people, this is for the people, this is what the people want. We want to end this division and this hatred and this rhetoric that's meant to divide us. And, and and keep us separated just to keep them going, keep the swarm going. That's all we're doing. And you have really, really wonderfully pointed that out. So I, I really definitely recommend everybody watch the swarm video again. That is down below. Also, you have like a, I, I noticed at the end of the swarm video, you mentioned you have an institute that people can learn from. Like what what is that place? Yeah, what I did, Kim, was in, when I got back from my Fulbright work, I realized one of the most important things that we can do to help everyone in the world is to learn the science of systems. I used to teach it at MIT to elites. The elites use the science of systems. They understand the dynamics of control, but that same knowledge curriculum can be used for us for our own liberation. So I put this curriculum together and I realized that like fire being brought to the masses, um, like Prometheus did, we need to bring this knowledge to the masses. So I created it, put it into a course and people can go to truthfreedomhealth.com and people can learn it. And if you're an adult and you learn it, you can then give it away to as many children as you want between 13 for 18. Okay. So it is the science of systems, in my view, that is gonna be the liberating force. It gives people the tools to understand this so they don't get into the left or right camp. And that, to me, it's, it's about raising human consciousness. We're at an extraordinary time where there's massive darkness taking place. It's an opportunity for people to raise consciousness. And if enough of us do that, consciousness, raising of consciousness is also is an energy. It spreads to others. So that's the opportunity that we have. So I think we're living in a very extraordinary time. And it's sort of uh, unfortunately exciting. And it's an unfortunately exciting opportunity to educate people on ethnic nationalism, on how the swarm wants to divide us for their advancement. 
Hamas makes money. Hamas and Israel work together. Is the Israeli Zionists make money, Netanyahu. The people who lose are everyday working people, all different ethnic uh, nationalities. So I think it's a, it's a great opportunity, but people need to understand Zionism is racism in the service of imperialism. Zionism is anti-Semitic. Zionism uh, is not Judaism. They're two different phenomena. Um, and it's not the even the Indians Jewish people. Was, You've got Judaism, Zionism, and then you have Jewish people, and they're all three exactly. separate. And, and, the, and Tulsi Gabbard, if you're listening to it, you need to get your head out of you know what and recognize that Hinduism and Brahmanical casteism are two different things. And when you say you want to go, you know, and she did the same thing with 9-11. She was all out to go into attack Iraq. So you yeah. claim to be against a military industrial complex, but you're a warmonger. And so I think it's, it's an opportunity for people to look at people like myself and you, people who come from below and to each other. The swarm, be it the Kennedys, be it the Trumps, be it the Bernie Sanders, they're not going to help you. They're all Zionists. They're part of this. Don't look to them. So, and, you know, quick pitch, um, Kim, people can go to Shiva, numeral four president.com. We have a bumper sticker there we recommend people to get. My belief is the future is offline. Everything is controlled online even. So I recommend people go there. There's a flyer we have on a download. Download it. it you can educate people who is a swarm what they're doing to your health and your children's health. The, the future is going offline. And if you really want to get educated, go to Truth For Them Health and start understanding how systems work. But that's the way out, it's education. Get educated or be enslaved. That's my you know slogan here. And that's the, it's a long game in that sense, but it's the ultimate game. Well, uh, Dr. Shiva Ayadurai, this has been a wonderful conversation once again. Thank you so much for being here. And I, I do have all those links down below so anybody can, find everything really easily, but um, wonderful, enlightening conversation. And I think, uh, you know, are you going to be on the ballot in California? Yeah, we have to get on the, everyone's got to get on the ballot, right? We have to collect so many signatures. Yeah. So our team is collecting signatures. If you want to help us collect signatures, let me know. <laughs> well, I, 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 I hope you are on the ballot because I would absolutely, yeah. I, you know, at this point, I, I'm leaning towards you. I'm leaning towards you. So. <laughs> okay. so I thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Kim. Great discussion. Very, very, very intelligent. I'm glad we had this conversation. Thank you. Well, guys, that was a really insightful conversation. Uh, really enjoyed having Dr. Shiva Ayadurai on the show. Again, uh, very, very smart guy. Again, all those links are down below for anything that you want to, you know, click around there and get more information on Dr. Shiva and all of his resources and his swarm video, which again, I really recommend you watch. Um, great conversation, guys. Thank you so much for being here. Good night.